morning again and welcome to worship with us as you see on the screen that we are going through a new series called the big reveal i came across this poem uh, by uh, a minister her name is sarah borns and she is ministering all the way over in new york the um, new york city and she's part of a movement called hope nyc and i thought it was really appropriate really put into the words and the things that i've been wrestling with and one of the real reason why we started this series called The Big Reveal. I would like to read it for you. Uh, It's not on the screen, so you can pay attention as I read this. This poem is called Exposed. We've all been exposed, not necessarily to the virus, though maybe, who knows? We've all been exposed by the virus. Corona is exposing us, exposing our weak sides, exposing our dark sides, Exposing what normally lies far beneath the surface of our souls. Hidden by the invisible mask we wear. Now exposed by the paper mask we can't hide far enough behind. Corona is exposing our addiction to comfort. Our obsession with control. Our compulsion to hoard our protection of self. Corona is peeling back our layers. Tearing down our walls, revealing our illusions, leveling our best laid plans. Corona is exposing the gods we worship. Our health, our hurry, our sense of security, our favorite lies, our secret lusts, our misplaced trust. Corona is calling everything into question. What is the church without a building? What is my worth without an income? How do we plan without certainty? How do we love despite risk? Corona is exposing me. My mindless numbing, my endless scrolling, my careless words, my fragile nerves. We've all been exposed. Our junk laid bare, our fears made known, our band-aid torn, the masquerade done. So what now? What's left? Clean hands? Clear eyes, tender hearts. What coronavirus reveals, God can heal. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Have mercy on us. What a timely and accurate poem. Really put to the words of why we're going through this series of the book of Revelation. When we talk about the big reveal, we're talking about the idea that as Jesus wrote these seven letters through the apostle John while he was in prison, house arrest in Patmos, Jesus was writing these letters through John to the seven churches. And as he wrote these letters, he wrote with, with this in mind, really to expose us, to expose the church, to expose... The Christians, the disciples, there are things in our hearts that is not right. As we've been going through these seven letters, we've gone through the first one, Ephesus. And here in Ephesus, we saw that Ephesus was a church of a thriving ministry, yet they've forgotten, abandoned their first love. Then we went to the second church last week, the church of Smyrna, in which the only ch- one of the two churches in the seven church among the seven churches that God had no rebuke. And so this week we're going to take. A look at the third church, Pergamum. The church Pergamum. But before I do that, I want to tell us a little story uh, that I had in, when I was in college. Uh, when I was in college, my last year in college, I lived with three other guys, and all of us are heavily involved in our collegiate ministry. We're all leaders, and subsequently, there are a lot of traffic in and out of apartment. With Bible studies, prayer meeting, uh, equipments are stored in our apartment. So what happened is, we're so tired of giving our key to people that we decide not to lock our doors anymore. Because on any given day, there are people coming in and out of our apartment. And sometimes we're in class, sometimes we were in meetings, so we just decided that why don't we just leave the door unlocked? Not a good idea, you're probably thinking, and you will be true, actually. Because we left our door unlocked, and so people come in and now, but what we, uh, what ended up happened was that we never any, have any thieves or robbers come in and take anything from our house. We have guitars, we have projectors, we have all sorts of expensive stuff. What ended up happened was, there was a group of sisters in our fellowship that uh, really loved us, decided to play a 
uh, prank on us. So hopefully they're not listening to this sermon. But uh, what they did was they came into our apartment every Friday night. We'll uh, Friday afternoon we'll play basketball. All the brothers go play basketball, and then by the end of the de- uh, of the afternoon we came back, and we walked in. We realized that there's something different in our apartment. The door was closed. We opened it. It was unlocked as usual. But when we walked in, we start seeing these uh, toilet paper hanging off of our our, our lamp. Lamp, lamp in the living uh, dining ta- dining room. Then we're uh oh, someone came and TP'd us. It's not that bad. We can clean it up. But what what happened next is we wa- walked into each one of our two rooms. Four of us share uh, share two rooms. When we walked into the room, what we realized was that our room, while it's the same room that I've been going to sleeping on and going to there's restroom in there too. The things in our room are completely swapped out. So what they did was they literally changed everything, moved our clothes, moved our blankets, moved our pillows. They have swapped things with one with my other roommates in the other room. They take our towels away and they put our toothbrush and completely messed up our apartment. They took stuff from the restroom uh, to, I won't name the items, but they put it into the kitchen. They put the forks and the chopstick into our bedroom, into our drawer. They moved our pens, they our, 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 our textbooks. They just completely swapped out our Bedrooms, our whole apartment. And you might be thinking, man, if you leave your door, don't you, don't you think that people will come steal yourself? But what I realized that day, at the end of that day, was that most of the time attacks don't just come from the outside. Sometimes the attack actually come from the inside. It was an inside job that these sisters and swap us out and, and, and you have no idea how mad we were. Yes, we were ministry leaders. Yes, we were God's servant. But I've never prayed more for God's grace and mercy so that I don't do anything stupid to those sisters. The reason why I share with you about this story is simply because of this. That sometimes as Christians, our biggest struggles not necessarily happen on the outside, what people can see. A lot of times with our struggles, our temptation happen is really on the inside. See, the church of Pergamum, here's the third church that uh, Jesus is writing to, happens to be a church that uh, stood firm for Jesus. They held firm, uh, held to the name of Jesus in spite of persecution. Some of which we explained last week in Smyrna. But yet those, are the, the, those people who hold, held fast to the name of Jesus ended up compromising their lives. From inside and out. They start compromising what they believe to be true about God. So the attack was not so much on the outside that they were persecution. But the attack was really from the inside that they start compromising. And so Jesus addressing to this church. And, and, and there are a couple of things that he said that was commendable. But then there are also a few things that we will see that Jesus are rebuking them on. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Revelation chapter 2. It's the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to pick up the letter from verse 12 in chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. If you have your Bible, please open it up. And if you're not, follow along on the screen. Here's what the Word of God said. And to the church and the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of them, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your gift, for your gift of your word. 
that each week, every day, that we get to open your word and hear from you. So the Spirit of God, would you illuminate our mind, illuminate our hearts, help us to see the things you want us to know, believe, and obey? God, would you speak through me this morning? Use, use the words that you put in my heart to encourage, to exhort. If there's anything that is not of you, God, I pray that you will keep them away from my mind, from my heart, so that I won't say those words. God, we come before you. We ask that you'll bless our time in the word. Help us not to be just merely listeners of your word, but be doers of your word. May the, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, would you get glory among us this day? In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you go to Pergamum today, still today, you will see that Pergamum actually exists on high up on a hill. Pergamum, we're going to call it today, the, it will be called the Church of Com- the Compromising Church. You will sit up on the hill. It will be a thousand feet above sea level. So if you go to Turkey and you go to the city of Pergamum, you will see the city high up on the hill. Unlike Smyrna, unlike Ephesus, who is at the seaport, they are a city on a hill. And there will be amazing buildings, temples, architecture that, that will catch people's eyes. In fact, it was, uh, Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor for 250 years. And it was a city of importance, just like all the other seven cities, but, but not just a city of commerce, but a city of culture. It was a place kind of like uh, Washington, D.C., where people are educated, people are making decisions, would go to that city, would be part of that city. And while being high up in elevation, it provides great security for the people living there. There will be walls around the city. As If any of you follow any military history, you know that high ground is always better ground. And yet in this city is where Jesus wrote to the church. By now you should be familiar with the pattern of every single letter. That the, every single letter began with... Jesus identifying himself personally. There's a unique quality of Jesus or character of Jesus that or name of Jesus that Jesus will be giving to the church. And here what it says to the church of Pergamum, uh, verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, Jesus through, uh, through uh, John write down this to the angel, to the messenger of the church in Pergamum. He write this for them to hear. Here's what it says. The words of him, meaning Jesus, who has the sharp two-edged sword. So here Jesus identifying himself as the two-edged sword. It was a familiar uh, um, imagery for them because re- right before they re- come to this letter in chapter 1, we see that imagery. Jesus calling himself out of his mouth, there's a two-edged sword. And for those of you who are familiar in the scripture, you know that the two-edged sword represent the scripture, the word of God. Hebrews child, we see that in uh, the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. That the, the sword of the Spirit, it is the Word of God. We also see that in Hebrews chapter 4, that the Word of God has this function of not just inspiring, communicating uh, information or, or teaching, but the Word of God also have a function of judging. Because Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that it judges the deepest part of our lives. And this is the image that Jesus is giving to the church of Pergamum to tell them that I am that two-edged sword. Not just one-sided, but a sharp-edged sword. And my word is to be the judgment on you. And many times as Christians, I think we kind of mistakenly think that there will be no judgment on us. And somehow we believe, and that that would have been uh, half of the correct answer. Because it is true that by, by faith through, uh, through, uh, by, by faith that we put our, our trust in Jesus that on the last day of judgment, in the day of judgment, final judgment, there will be no punishment, no judgment on us because Jesus' blood has washed us away. But it is also true that Jesus through his word says that we will be judged by the way we live in this life. So yes, you will not be judged when Jesus said, did you uh, put your faith in me? Will you go to hell? Will you go to heaven? You will not be judged to go to hell because of your trust in Jesus. You're surrendering faith in Jesus. But the work that we live out in this life, the way we live while we're on earth, Jesus said there will be judgment of that. 
And as you, you will soon find out why Jesus made this a particular thing to the church of Pergamon, is because Jesus is about to judge the lives that they live while they're in Pergamon. We will be judged. We are not going to be condemned to hell, but it says that our work in this world, the way we live, will be judged by the very truth and word of God. It will not be because God loves us more and favors us. It will be judged by the very word of God. And so the question we ought to ask ourselves is this. Does our lives stand up to the truth of God? But before Jesus gets there, Jesus gives them accommodation. Because there were some amazing things that they're doing in the city of Pergamum. Here's what he says. Jesus commended them for holding fast to Jesus' name. In the face of persecution, they did not waver. They stood firm and said, I still believe in Jesus no matter what. Look at what verse 13 says. He says, Jesus said, continue his letter and says this. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, <clears throat> who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We see this phrase time and time again. I know. This time, Jesus, I know where you live. And the place where Pergamum is not a, a, as pretty as I just described earlier. Because Jesus is not described this citadel that they're sitting on, this high place and how secure they are. Jesus described the city of Pergamum, a name that none of us wanted our city to have. He called this city, Pergamum, the Satan's throne. And just to double up on that, at the end of that verse, he says, not only Satan's throne, it is where Satan dwells, where Satan lives. Now, I know Las Vegas got, a, got, got the nickname the Sin City. Pergamum had it worse. It is Satan's throne it is where Satan sits and where Satan lives. It's worse. Your city is called Sin City. At least you, you, Satan is not there. Maybe he's just doing some work there. But Pergamum, Jesus said, is a city that Satan's throne is at. Why? The reason why is because while Smyrna is a city that had the first uh, emperor worship temple, Pergamum had three. They did not build the first one, but they catch up by building three. We see in the picture here the Temple of Trajan, one of the temples that, that was built. And, and as I explained last week through the city of Smyrna, that the believers at the time were pressured, the citizen of Roman citizens living in, in, in the modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor back then, that they are supposed to pay homage, to pay loyalty. They're supposed to burn incense annually to these temples to pledge their allegiance to these emperor. To these Caesar. They are supposed to declare that Caesar is Lord. And Pergamum is filled with uh, 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 imperial worship like this. Believers are called, are commanded to do so. But as if that's not enough, the city of uh, Pergamum, while high up into this elevation, are not just a place for imperial worship. It is also a place of many, many religions. You, there is a buffet choice of religion that you can be a part of. I want to show you a picture, particularly this one, the one that uh, one of the Greek gods that many people know, Zeus. This is a, a, a reconstruction, a, a model of what the temple of Zeus would have been like in, temp, in, in, in Pergamum. I want to just imagine looking at that picture. What does it look like? Imagine someone is just sitting in the middle. You're standing in the middle of that building. You put your arms out. Lean back a little bit. What does that look like? It looks like a throne, doesn't it? But that's not the only religion. There are many, many other religions, many, many other temples there. So you want to believe in, you want to worship something, there is one for you. Tailor made for every person who wants to worship. And while Satan is fervently at work, we can expect, as we learned last week, that Christians will be fiercely persecuted. And Pergamum was not any different. See, Jesus, I know the heavily attacked place that you're living. I know the spiritually dark place that you're living in. And yet, I, Jesus said, I commend you that you hold fast of my name. The idea of hold fast, the word hold, the phrase hold fast, had this idea of not letting go. 
Like it was almost like the first day when I take my kids to preschool and they just hold on to my leg. And say, no, you're not going, Daddy. You're not going. I'm not going to school. You, the teacher need to pull them out, pull their arm and separate their finger one by one to tear it away from me to get them into school. That's the idea here. That these believers, while they are in the face of persecution, pressure, even losing lives, these Followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, held fast to Jesus' name. So on the outside, they will not shrink back and say, I am a believer of Jesus. Caesar is not my Lord. Christ is my Lord. And Jesus even gave them an example that that, uh, one of their own martyr by the name of Antipas. says, you did not deny your faith. You did not turn back against me. Even in the days of Antipas, And I love that title, My Faithful Witness. If you just turn your page one over to Revelation 1 again, you know who's being called the faithful witness? Who gets that high honor to be called faithful witness? It was Jesus Christ himself. So you can see how Jesus really honored what what these believers have done for them. You see, Antipas, one example, is not in a text. It was uh, through tradition and history that we know that Antipas was persecuted by the Roman government. Basically, they're saying, you don't want to worship Caesar as your Lord? Then we're going to make you an example. He was a pastor, a leader in Pergamum. And what they did was this. Just to show, give you a sense of how evil, how dark the city of Pergamum was. Instead of just killing him, burning him, they created this device called a brazen bull. It's basically a bull that was made out of bronze. And they, they are holding, will put that person in the light of fire underneath. And as you look at the picture, you see that there is the nostril of the bull, but also you see there's a trumpet in the bull. What they're doing is that as this person being roasted in hot fire inside of that bull, the person will be screaming and crying, and the trumpet, will, the, the sound that will come through the trumpet will not be the person screaming and crying. It will be the person almost making this roar sound, this bull, bull horn sound. And the nostril of that, that bull will be smoking with where smoke's coming out. And imagine that day you're walking along the street, and then you just hear this, this roar of a bull. Smoke coming out of this bull to announce to the whole city that we just caught another one. That denied Caesar. And if you want to be like him, go right ahead. That was where Satan's throne was. And that was the persecution that these believers are going through. Imagine today that you're in ISIS. A church located in, in the stronghold of ISIS. That would have been equivalent of that day. And yet Jesus commended these believers. You stood firm. Like your leader Antipas. You did not deny me. And I hope this is an encouragement for some of us. As I said last week, there are maybe some of us who are standing firm before the Lord and we're we're suffering, we're being persecuted, and you're wondering, would that ever end? I want you to know, and I believe Jesus wants you to know, He knows what you're going through. But then there's the word that we didn't hear last week, but the week before, and we'll continue to hear the word but. That while the church is holding fast and to the name of Jesus, all was not well in the church of Pergamum. Because Jesus is about to point out not one, not two, but a few things that was wrong with that church. That was wrong with the people in that church. The believers in that church. The church that stood firm for Jesus. Hear what he says. Jesus rebuked them for making compromises to the world. Revelation chapter 2, continue on. Verse 14, he says this, but I have a few things. You remember? Ephesus is one thing. Smyrna has zero thing. Pergamum have a few things. What are those few things? I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. 
There's a lot of names here, a lot of unfamiliar names to you. There, who's Balak, who's Balaam, who's Nickelodeon. Like my kids watching the shows on Nickelodeon. So what's wrong with that? I grew up on watching that. What, what are all these things here, right? So, so let me unpack this for you a little bit and as quickly as I can. Balaam, Balak, or his story from Numbers chapter 22, 25. Balak was a king, a Moabite king. He wanted to curse the people of God. So he hired a, a prophet, and his name is Balaam, and he was trying all he wants to, to curse the city, uh, the, the people of God. And God, in his, divine, uh, so, in his divine sovereignty, keep making his curse become blessing. And so Balaam, uh, Balaam got so upset, it's like, I told you to curse the people of God, and now you're blessing them. So Balaam finally, instead of cursing, in Numbers 31-16, uh, he started infiltrating by teaching false, uh, spreading false teaching to the people of God. Since he cannot curse them on the outside, you know what he did? He started spreading these false teaching among them and saying, well, you can do whatever you want. You're a people of God. God is on your side. Don't worry about it, man. You can do whatever you want. Go sleep with the, the, the uh, go worship the gods of other people in the, in the land where God says, don't do that. Go marry their, 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 their people. God doesn't care. You're God's people. And the Lycanadans is basically the same thing. They were teaching. We don't know again. We heard from them, from uh, the church of Ephesus. But they were basically teaching the same exact thing, that do whatever you feel like doing. After all, you are a Christian. You have Christ in you already. You have salvation. doesn't matter how you live. And those were the teaching that was going on in the city, in the church of Pergamum. I think the word that best described, best summarized those teaching is the word that you see here. Compromise. They have compromised their lives. They have compromised. They give in. See, the core problem of compromise is never that they didn't love Jesus. It was not that they did not worship God. Compromise is never, I, I draw a fine line. I no longer worship. I deny God. I deny Christ. No, compromise always Starts with small things. Compromise is not the fact I don't want God. It's just I want God and I want the world. Compromise says you can put one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus. That it's okay that you go to church, but it's also okay for you to live a worldly life every other day aside from Sunday. Compromise says that, that, that you can give money to church and, get, uh, and financially and you can support ministry, but yet it doesn't matter how you spend money outside of that as long as you give 10% to God. Those were the teaching that was going on in the church of Pergamum, and, and there's no better example of that in another temple that, they get, they, that has spread this false teaching among them. It is the, God, uh, the temple of Dionysus. If you never heard of Dionysus, Dionysus, the Temple of Dionysus is actually it is huge, as you see the picture, ten thousand seat stadium. And he was the god of wine. He was the god of party. Like think Mardi Gras in like New Orleans. So what happened is to worship this god Dionysus. What you need to do is you need to show up at the stadium, and, and because he is the god of wine, what you need to do is let's drink it up, let's party it up. Let's stay all night and just party. One thing leads to another. Start sleeping with the people, whoever you want to, wherever you see. You can be as promiscuous as you want because at the end of the day, that's how the worship of Dionysus exists. That's quote-unquote worship. You're honoring him. And that was going on in the city of Pergamum. And at first, the Christians were like, no, like we shouldn't do that. That's wrong. That's sinful. But as they continue... To hear these teaching, continue to believe in these teaching, and well, do whatever you want. You have Jesus; it doesn't matter. Then they start thinking, well, maybe it doesn't matter. I'm just gonna go with a friend. I mean, I want to do evangelism. Let's just go with a friend. I'll just go once. I'll go twice. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Maybe after work we'll go hit it up, and I'll leave early. One thing led to another. They just start going and start going. And they said, well, I love Jesus. But I need to take a little edge off at the end of the work, work week. But I, I, I really worship Jesus. I go to church on Sunday. But Jesus didn't care about me going to this party at the, end of the, at the end of the week. And before you know it, the church of Pergamum was drifting farther and farther 
and farther away from God. And Jesus said, I, 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 I know what you have done. I have, this thing you be, you, I have this thing against you because you have compromised your life to the world. Isn't it true today? We face exact same temptation. It might be looked differently on the outside, but it looks exactly the same. And here's the problem with compromises. They always start from a small thing that leads to a big thing. The temples, the, the idols, the figurines at the time in the city of Pergamon was made up of marble stones. These are not, but they're white. You know how you build an idol? You do it one at a time. One small rock at a time. One small pebble at a time. You give a little compromise here. You give a little compromise here. Then slowly you start building it and building it. Before you know it, you have this idol. Maybe for some of us, at first we were just looking at some sports news that, and some ads pop up with some scantily clad girls wearing nothing, close to nothing. And you just take a look at it and say, well, I'm going to skip this. But it remains in your mind and you just keep looking at it longer one day, two days, before you know it, you're looking at pornography. For some of us, it might be a show on HBO. It has good social critique, amazing critique of our world. Man, after all, I need to talk to my friends so I know what they're watching. So you start watching one episode. Maybe you stop because it got a little too violent. It got a little bit too, too sexual. But you go back again, one episode led to another episode, one watching led to binge watching, one thing led to another thing. For some of us, maybe we just kind of skip church once in a while, I have homework to finish, our final. I have a work deadline to meet. Let me just kind of take care of that on Sunday. Or I skip my small group. It's just one time, just one time. I mean, come on. Like, I need a break once in a while. One thing led to another. One rock led to another rock. And before you know it, you are building up an idol. An idol, a, 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 a attraction to sex, addiction to drugs. One week you need to show up. Once a month, become twice a month, three times a month. And slowly, you know one have seen you. And that's how idols are built. One little compromise at a time. And before you know it, you are being mastered by that idol rather than thinking that you can master your, your compromises. That you, something that you never thought would happen to you actually happened to you. And here's a question I want to ask you and I have been wrestling with my own life. What kind of things are you compromising to right now? How have you compromised your life to the things of this world? What kind of things in our culture have these hooks in deep in you that you don't realize until you step back a little bit and think, huh, I'm no longer the master of what even good things, but now those good things, seemingly good things, now have a deep hook in me and master me and become idols of me, for me. I think for some of us, it might be simply what we described here as literal it is or, or our sexual temptation. That perhaps you have go, you have slowly built up this this tolerance to 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 pornography that you no longer feel any pain, any shame in watching it. Maybe that's what you're struggling with. For some of us, it might simply be just the way we use our speech. We crack a joke here at work, crack a joke with my friends. Before you know it, everyone is your target. You start saying coarse things and mean things, and you don't think that it matters to people because, after all, I'm just joking around. And for some of us, it might be just the way we use language, use our words. It's not a cuss word. Cuss word. It's not a foul language, but it's close. One thing led to another. Maybe your friends are saying more. He's like, oh, yeah, I can say it. I saw another Christian say it. God will forgive me. For some of us, maybe making compromises at work. Go in late. Leave early. Half an hour lunch become 40 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. Supervisor can't tell. Cut corners. I'm done with my work. I won't report it because if I report it, I'll get more work. 
Maybe for some of us, just telling the truth. We've been compromising the truth. We moved. Guess what we do? We'll continue to report with the old address so I can go back to the same school. Because my friends were there. It's a better school. Or you get paid by, t- by cash. Don't have to report to IRS. Everybody does that. I, I don't even make enough money to, 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 to cost a flag to be raised at IRS. Who cares? There are people who are making millions of dollars. I'm barely making a thousand. No one will find out. No one cares. I'm not cheating government. I'm not, my $1,000 is not going to save anybody else in this world. We make compromises after compromises, small compromises that we never thought would happen, would never add up to the big things, and we eventually build up these idols that dominate our lives. And you see what happens here? When Satan cannot persecute us to submission, Satan perverts us. When Satan cannot kill us enough to get us back off from Jesus, you know what he does? He joins us. He can't kill you. Guess what? I'm going to join your church. Let me corrupt your thinking. If he can't curse you to follow him, to, to make you scared to follow him, he will compromise you enough so that you feel like I'm just following Jesus as much as I have. Except the reality is you have built up an idol that have robbed the glory of Jesus from your life. We see that in the Bible. Golden calf. Moses up on the mountain seeing, G- seeing God. Guess what the people of God doing down below? We build a golden calf. We need to worship. We need to do something. John Mark left in the middle of the mission with, with Paul and Barnabas. Demas with the, with, the, with the worst title description in all of scripture. Demas, the one who is in love with the present world. Parable of the soils. Four soils. The third one is what? They get choked up by, by the thorns of this world. No one wake up one day and say, I will drift away from God. But when we start building one compromise after another, we start falling further and further away from God. But not only compromise behavior, because Jesus said, it's not really just the behavior on the outside. What is being compromised really deep down? It's your theology, your faith, your, your knowledge, your, your belief about your conviction about God. Because when you look at the verse... Look at the, 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 the rebuke Jesus had. It's not just what they did on the outside, but it has to do with the teaching of Balaam. And in verse 14, it was the, it was the te- uh, 15, it was the teaching of Nicolaitans. That's, you see, co- co- compromised behavior is always fruit of compromised theology. Compromise, let me run it back. Compromised behavior and act are always the fruit of compromised theology. See, theology is just a a fancy word, a scholarly word describing what we believe about God. Everyone has theology. You can be a, a, you can be, you can be uh, someone who doesn't believe in God, and yet you have a theology because your theology says, I don't believe in God. All of us have a theology, but the problem is this, or is our theology, our belief, conviction about God, is it the same as what this book tells us, teaches us? You see, for Nicolaitis, for the church of Pergamum, for Balaam, they're teaching their theology is do whatever you want because Jesus set you free. You can do it to your heart's desire because now you've been freed by Jesus. The grace of Christ have given to you. You can do whatever you want. Live it up. There's no judgment. Oh, by the way, that's why Jesus started in the beginning. He said, I am that sharp, double-edged sword. Their theology says Jesus will not judge you by your work here on earth because you're already a Christian. Their theology says don't worry about how you live. You'll always get to heaven. Just say a quick prayer to ask for forgiveness. You'll be good. Now, time won't allow me to go through the theology of the whole Bible, but I think what is useful here is I want to share with us just five, five core convictions and beliefs and the theology that we need to hold strong to. These are not uh, original by me. These are given through the reformers like Martin Luther. That as they were wrestling with the Catholic Church, all these traditions, all the extra stuff out of the Bible that they're obeying, they kind of dwindle down and realize that what matters most is not our tradition, it's not how we feel, but what God has done for us. These are traditionally called the five sola. I, before the, any uh, Latin nerds start uh, condemning me, I know that the, the word is not sola, it's not the plural form. 
should be sole, but just for English sake, we put we we'll call it the five sola. So here's the five sola. Here's the first one: sola scriptura, meaning that we're uh, according to scripture alone. That scripture is the authority of your life, not your feeling, not your mother's command, not even your own desire. The scripture is the final authority of our lives. Sola fides, through faith alone, that we're not driven by circumstances, but, but we've been saved through faith and faith alone in Christ Jesus. Sola gracia, saved by grace alone, that our identity does not depend on how much I can do for God. Our, our salvation comes completely through grace because we're all sinners at the foot of the cross. Sola Deo, uh, Gloria means for the glory of Christ alone. That the meaning of your life, the purpose of your life is not to get, get a career, is not to get a family, is not to get a retire, is not to die nicely or live in a luxurious life. No matter how much money you make, how old you are, your purpose of life is for the glory of God alone. And here's the last one, Solas Christus in Christ alone. That we only have power and strength and the only ability to do anything that is pleasing for the glory of God is in Christ alone. Our identity is in Christ alone. But you know what are the common denominator for five of these solas? While they are for us, ultimately they're not about us. Here's the test for you. Is your theology about God, your belief about God, is it more about you or is it more about God? You know you're always having the wrong theology when it's all about you. It's never about God. I paid top dollars to study in seminary. And one of my theology professors taught me this simple truth. And I can't believe I paid that much money for it. Yet I'm still learning about it. And it's simply this. The moment we're convicted that God is God and we're not, we're on the way to being sanctified and mature in our faith. God is God and we're not. That's what our theology needs to come down to. You see, for the people of Pergamum, Christians in Pergamum, it was not that. It was God is God, that's great, but I also have my part too. Let me live it up and while I live, while I live for God. And so here God rebuked them and said, you have compromised your life. But God did not just rebuke them to condemn them, but God rebuked them so that they can restore, so that God can restore their lives. And here's what he said you need to do. Revelation chapter 2 verse 16, the letters continue, says this, Jesus calls us and them to repent. Therefore repent, if not I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. It should sound familiar to us. The letters to Ephesus ends with the same instruction, command to repent. Throughout scripture, we're called to repent. Every time we drifted away from God, repent. Every time we have fallen, repent. See, Jesus is not in the business of condemning us because he's saved as he died for your sins. What he wants you to do though, when you, when you repent is to come back to him. The idea of repentance has to do with change. It has to do with change of mind, change of heart, and change of hands. That we cannot just simply walk away and say, well, I, man, this message is really convicting. Spirit of God is like convicting me about these little compromises I'm making. And yet there's no change in your head, in your heart, in your hands. I think oftentimes that's a, that's a concern I have for us as Christians going to Sunday is we walk away feeling yeah, that sounds really bad. I feel really bad about it, but it's not to the point that we want to commit to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to repent of what I've done and I want to change. And so do not walk away today from the sermon, from our worship time, thinking, oh, well, that, that feels kind of bad. I feel kind of bad that I compromise my, my walk with Jesus, my life to, to the world. That is not repentance in and of itself. Repentance have to do with Come before God and say, God, I want to change. And I cannot change unless I come to you. The whole point of repentance is restoration. The whole point of repentance is that Jesus said, I know you can't. I know you're falling again for the thousands of times. But I'm going to restore you and give you strength. But you have to recognize you have done something wrong against me. And willing to commit to change. Make that 180 degree change to the way of my life. Uh, the, way, the way of my command. And when we don't, Jesus said there's severe consequence. 
He says this, if you do not repent, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. It is that serious that Jesus does not want us to compromise our lives. Both for your sake and for his glory's sake. Because the moment you start compromising your life, the moment you start building up this idol getting bigger and bigger, what happens is your witness for him will start getting smaller and smaller. That's why you're left on earth to do, to bring glory to Jesus. So that more people can see, taste, and hear the glory of Jesus Christ. But if your idol is so big, no one can see that anymore. And Jesus, I'm going to come and correct you. And the language you use is, I'm going to fight you. War against you. He's going to correct that. With his truth. Because you are his means here on earth. To bring glory. To, you're part of his plan to fulfill the glory of God here on earth. And he will see to it that you will come back around. And whatever it means that he will use. Based on the word of God. And as we think about our compromises, I think it's easy to point out what compromises are we making, and, but at the same time we feel like we have no strength against it. How can we, swimming up against the current when the whole world is throwing these rocks at us and just asking us, compromise, compromise, compromise. And here, as if every single letter, Jesus ends with a promise. He ends with a promise. He, he called us to listen first. It says, verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I hope that's what we're doing, hearing, listening. But here's what he says. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There are two things that Jesus promises. The first one that he promises is that this, this hidden manna. We don't know what it is, but we know from Scripture that manna was given to the people of God back in the Old Testament in the desert. When they're wandering, by the way, in the midst of disobedience, God provided manna, basically this white, flaky, sweet stuff, that every single day they get to collect them and go home and eat. They collect as much as they want, just eat it all, and then the next day they go get more. Talk about grocery shopping. Just go out. I can send my kids out to grocery shopping now. And the whole idea of manna is that God will satisfy. God will, will complete and support. Give us the strength. Give us our necessity. Give us our sustenance that, that, that allows us to live. And, and here Jesus is saying, remember, I'm promising you. You don't need these compromises. Com you know what compromises to you? They always overpromise and underdeliver. They will never satisfy you as they claim to be. The sex will never be as good as you think. Afterward, you will feel guilty. The, 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 the gluttony, that the food that you're consuming will not make you feel better afterwards when you just keep eating and eating. The approval that people give you that you think you're getting is not going to satisfy you because you're going to end up doing more things to earn people's approval. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you a manna that, no, that does not come from the world because I am the bread of life. You can rely on me today. I am your strength today. You can come to me, be satisfied. You can come to my word. You can pray to me. It will satisfy you. But not only did he promise things for today to fight a battle against compromise. He gave us this great promise of the white stone. Of the white stone, he says, a white stone that will have our, uh, a new name on it, and it will be a name that nobody else would know. It will be personalized to you. Um, I, I, I don't know what, what, what my name would be in heaven, but it will be a new name. See, Jesus promised us that I'm going to give you a white stone. You see, when we look at these white stones, when the people at Pergamon look at the white stone, it will remind them of the, all the compromises they've made. It would have reminded them of the defeat and all, 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 the, all the disobedience that they have against Christ. And they will feel shameful. And here's, I love it that Jesus said, I'm going to take the white stone. I'm going to redeem them. Back in those days, people, there are many, many uh, instances they use white stone. One of which was when you are a winner. When you are a winner in a race. You're given a white stone almost as a ticket to go to the winner's banquet. 
And you have your name on it, and on the way in, the only way to go into this banquet would have been you holding this white stone of your name on there, and then it would be a ticket to the greatest party, greatest celebration there is. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, to one who conquers, before when you look at these white stones, these compromises, you're thinking, I'm a loser. But Jesus said, no, you're not. I promised you by the, by the blood, of, uh, by, by my death and resurrection, I made you a winner. You can hold on to these white stones. You, you know, I have a name for you, a special name, a personalized name, personalized name for you. And you're going to go to this big banquet, big celebration at the end of time. It will be way better than, than the party that Dionysus is throwing out there. It will be way better than any compromises you're making. But it will not be now, but it will be future. There will come a day that you'll be holding this stone. When the end of time will come, you'll be holding this stone. You have your name on it. And, and, and I will let you come in to this celebration with me forever. That's what Jesus is promising us. These white stones was won. Defeat. Now we are. These are victories. Signs of victory that we have in Jesus. So Jesus said, do not settle for those compromises anymore. Do not sacrifice your own joy, fulfillment, and purpose for these compromises. Let me be your eternal hope and joy. My share being in the beginning, the story of our house, our apartment being, being uh, trashed and messed up. One of the reasons why was because our doors were not locked. Our doors were not locked. Anyone can come in and out. And here my encouragement and exhortation to you. Lock your door. Lock the door of your hearts. So that you lock the doors of your hearts against compromises. Lock the doors of your hearts against fleshly desires that might feel good. Lock the doors of your heart against idols. Lock the doors of your hearts against false teaching. Teaching that says you are the center of it all. Open only your hearts to Jesus Christ. Only let that door open when it's Jesus. Let him be your all and all. Let him be your strength. Let him be your final reward and satisfaction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that we have a reward that is beyond this world, that what this world offers to us is nothing pale in comparison to what we will receive from you one day. But in the meantime, God, if you have convicted us today about our compromise that we made, cause us to repent. Help us come clean before you, knowing that you love us, that your love will drive out those fear in us, that we feel ashamed, but restore us. Lord, if we can't see you, we can't feel you, Lord, I pray that you'll meet us where we're at. Help us to commit to be decide, help us to make a decision today on to follow you. Put the world behind us. Help us to take the light in Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.